Well, good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, Acts 16. Our sermon text this morning will be uh, verses 30 through 34. If you've been here, if you were here last week in particular, uh, well, you know we've been working through the book of Acts. And uh, last week we talked about all of chapter 16. So you might have thought, well, this week we're going to go on to chapter 17. That makes sense. 17 comes after 16. I can do basic math. And, um, but uh, we, we are pausing for a minute to, to go into uh, one part, really even one word of Acts 16 a little more fully. And so um, we're going we're gonna to look more fully at Acts 16, 30 through 34. Before we read that together, would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you again and we, we seek your face. We need, we need your face. We need your blessing. We need your spirit. We need your presence with us. We confess our ignorance, our inability to understand your word aright apart from the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit. We confess that we so often don't get it. We're confused. Uh, we don't understand. Sometimes even when we do understand, we don't like what it says. So we pray that you would come and be with us now, that you would give us humble hearts, uh, that you would give me words that clearly communicate what your word is teaching, and give us discerning ears, Father, that we would be able to uh, hear what is true and good and right and discard what is not. We pray that, that through your word you would uh, encourage us and strengthen us to follow Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 16, beginning with verse 30. This is uh, right after uh, Paul and Silas had been arrested. Uh, there was a great earthquake that uh, sort of set them free from jail. Uh, the jailer comes out, realizes that they're, that they're still there. And uh, we read this in verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word, of the, the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. Well, as I said a moment ago, we're going to talk about one word this morning. And, uh, and even though we're going to talk about one word, I'm still only going to skim over what maybe needs to be said. Uh, it's a word that we often skip over as unimportant. We don't even really notice it in the book of Acts. Uh, you know, we read Acts 16.31, which says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And uh, that verse is often quoted uh, as uh, a call to personal or individual faith. And that's right and good and valid. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is a promise that, that we can all believe in and so find salvation. Uh, but the verse is actually a little more nuanced than that because... It continues. It actually says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And we're going to talk about that word household this morning. Uh, we're going to, in the context, of course, of, of households, we're going to talk a little bit about baptism because just about every time households are mentioned in Acts, those households are being baptized. Uh, I, I'm obviously not going to say everything that there is to say about either households or baptism. Uh, I'm just going to talk about baptism as it relates to this understanding of the household in the book of Acts. Uh, and so um, there's a lot I'm going to leave out. I wish I could say more, but, um, but for your sake, uh, I won't. Um, uh, and I hope as we go through this, you don't see this as simply a, a polemic for a certain view of baptism. Okay, another Presbyterian talking about infant baptism. Great. Uh, actually, I don't even like the phrase infant baptism. I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, I'd rather talk about covenant baptism or household baptisms, which is what we find in the book of Acts. And uh, really, we're going to be talking about something I think that is bigger than baptism. It includes that, but it's bigger than that. And so even in the end, if you completely disagree with me on who should be baptized, that's great. Uh, I hope uh, you will nevertheless benefit from, from what we say, both about households and about the meaning of your baptism and the implications of that for us. So I hope it'll be a benefit to all of us. I should say the more I read about baptism, the more confused I am. Uh, I don't know if you're ever that way with things. Um, but the more I read, the less I seem to understand uh, and yet, nevertheless, we're going to start out talking about baptism uh, right from the beginning. As you read through Scripture, there are 13 records of baptisms in Scripture, uh, 13 record, recorded baptisms taking place. Uh, and we can roughly categorize those into three groups. Uh, there are three individuals baptized. And I bet if you took a little time, you could, most of you, many of you at least, could figure out who they were. Uh, Jesus was baptized, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized, and Paul, right? So three individuals are mentioned. Uh, each one has, has one or more stories dedicated to their uh, baptism. Uh, then there are four distinct groups baptized, uh, four indistinct, I should say, four indistinct groups baptized. So John, you know, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist baptizes, quote, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem. Uh, that's about as indistinct as you could get, right? All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem. Uh, we're not told who specifically he baptizes. We just know it was a lot of people. And uh, we're told that in multiple Gospels. On Pentecost, Acts 2.41, 3,000 people are baptized and added to the church. That's a pretty big group as well. Acts chapter 8, we're told crowds of men and women are baptized in response to the preaching of Philip in Samaria. And then finally, in Acts chapter 19, uh, there are about 12 men, we're told, possibly disciples of John the Baptist, who receive Christian baptism. And so we have three individuals who are baptized in uh, the New Testament, four groups, sort of indistinct groups who are baptized. Uh, what about the remaining six? There are six more records, right, of baptisms. Uh, five of those are records of households being baptized. And so you have the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. You have the household of Lydia earlier in Acts 16. You have the household of the Philippian jailer here. You have the household of Crispus in Acts 18. You have the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So three individuals, four groups, five households. 
which if you're counting, that leaves one left over. That would be Gaius in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, and uh, I sort of leave him as, as uh, unknown because it's unclear whether Gaius is baptized by himself or as a part of a larger group or with his household. We're not told. Um, so I just sort of leave him. He's, leave him out. He's unknown. So we have one unknown, three individuals, four groups, five households baptized in the New Testament. Five households. It, it, it's interesting to me, at the very least, it's interesting that more household baptisms are recorded in Acts than individual baptisms. Uh, in each story at some point, each of those five stories that I mentioned, uh, the word household is used. It wouldn't have to be used. It could use the word family or, or, or other words, but the word household is used either in conjunction with baptism itself or uh, at times even in conjunction with the idea of salvation. Acts chapter 10, right? Peter is preaching uh, in Acts chapter 10 to Cornelius and, and uh, everyone who's in his house at the time. Spirit falls on all who hear and Peter has them baptized Later on in Acts eleven fourteen, an angel, we're told, said to Cornelius that uh, Peter would declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Uh, the, the promise to Cornelius was not just a promise of personal salvation, but the saving, whatever that means, the saving of his household. Acts 16, God opens Lydia's heart to hear and believe the gospel, then she and her household are baptized. Acts 16.31, the promise of salvation, again, is put in terms of households. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And in verse 33, then the Philippian jailer is baptized at once, he and all his family. Acts 18, verse 8, uh, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And then 1 Corinthians 1.16, Paul says he baptized the household of Stephanus. Now, as you notice, we went through that. They're all, all of those stories are a little bit different. Uh, you can go and read them in more detail for yourselves. But um, sometimes we're told the entire household believed. Uh, other times, not. Uh, in fact, in Acts 16.34... The jailer rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. It's kind of an interesting phrase because the entire household rejoiced, not that they had believed, but that the individual jailer believed in God. And, and what these five examples show, if nothing else, collectively, as you, as you look at all five of them, is that God deals in some sense with households as a unit. And what sense that is and what that means, we'll, we'll have to find out further as we go along. But um, otherwise, if, if, if God didn't in any way deal with households as a unit, the term itself would be meaningless. Why would the angel and Paul promise salvation to Cornelius and the Philippian jailer, respectively, and their households if the household were irrelevant in God's economy? And so I want us to ask some questions about this language of household, right? I want to ask really simple questions, basic questions, who and why and what and how. <laughs> who and why and what and how. And I, I think that's, yep, it's on the back of your bulletin. I'm never really sure when I say this. I always have to look to make sure. It really is there. It's on the back of your bulletin. I trust Joe, but there's still always part of me that says, is it there? I'm not sure. It's there on the back of your bulletin. If you want to follow along, there's that outline. <clears throat> 
We're going to, uh, more could be said, of course. Uh, there are other questions you might have. Uh, we're just going to ask these four. Who made up the household? Why would we baptize households? What does the baptism of household mean for the people of that household? Why is it important? Uh, what difference does it make? And then uh, how does this reflect the gospel? Okay, those are the four questions. Who made up a household? Why would we baptize household? What does the baptism of households mean? And how does this reflect the gospel? So first, who? Uh, who made up a household? If God in some sense is dealing with people in Acts, not just as individuals, but in households, uh, we should try to understand what this means and just who makes up a household when we read this word. And we could that, answer that question fairly simply by saying a household was a community of people gathered under a single head of household. Uh, your, your household was everyone that was yours, right, who belonged to you as the head of the house. Uh, if we think about it too much, we may not like this way of putting things, but it certainly was the view in the Roman world, as Luke was, uh, the world Luke was writing into. Uh, one writer said, of Roman households, he said, the model household was not a nuclear family living under one roof. The model Roman household was headed by a head of household. It included his wife, his children, slaves, slave children, and even free persons working in the household business. Okay, fine. That, that's the Roman concept of a household. It includes all of those people. Okay, what about the Jewish concept? What about sort of the Old Testament background? Here, Well, for that, we can look back in the Old Testament. We can turn back to Genesis 17, for example. God, in Genesis 17, is establishing his covenant with Abraham and his offspring. And he says this. I'm going to read a couple verses out of Genesis 17. We heard some of it earlier. We heard a fuller part earlier. Genesis 17, verse 10. God says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So Abraham's household included himself, his offspring, and his servants, whether born in his house or bought with his money. Uh, and and uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about Abraham's household too much, but it was not a small house. Uh, if, if, you, um, if you look back in Genesis 14, 14, you find out that there were 318 trained men in Abraham's house, uh, 318 fighting men in Abraham's house. So uh, when all of Abraham's house is circumcised in Genesis 17, that would have been well over 300 people. So the idea, both in the Roman and in, in the Jewish understandings of the household, in part at least, has to do with authority, right? the head of the house, who, is, who has authority over this group of people. Any given household consisted of everyone under the authority of the head of that house. This would include one's spouse, one's children, and even one's servants in either Israel or Rome. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, uh, children in particular are pointed out as being uh, a part of one's household. So, uh, just for one example, you, you uh, may be familiar with Paul's uh, requirements for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3, 4-5 says a pastor must manage his own household well, 
with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And uh, in that verse, it's clear that his children and his own household are just two different uh, ways of saying the same thing, two different phrases used to describe the same reality. Now, okay, so household consists of everyone in uh, one's house under their authority. But you know the, the arguments, right? Maybe you've thought it yourself of some when it comes to household baptisms and acts. How do we know if there were children in those households, right? So, okay, fine, household includes children, but how do we know that there were children in those particular households? Uh, well, the truth is we can't know one way or the other. Uh, and actually, I think that's irrelevant. What we see modeled are households being baptized without qualification. What is a household? A community of people gathered under a single head of house. And they're baptized because they're a part of that household, whoever they might be. That was true in the Roman world to which Luke spoke. That's what a household was. That was true in the Jewish world out of which the early church came. Uh, there's no other way to understand household in Scripture, right? Households included one spouse, children, servants, etc. Now, we don't live in the Roman world, right, or even ancient Israel. And I would not want to suggest that our families need to be structured like theirs were. And so the application question for us is, is this, in what does my household consist? Particularly, who is under my authority? In our day, for example, employees are not expected to be loyal to their employer's gods, right? That, that was true in Abraham's day. If you were a part of Abraham's house, you needed to be loyal to Abraham's God. That's not true today, thankfully, maybe for some of you, right? Uh, but in general, even in our culture, Younger children at least go to church or mosque or synagogue with their parents. Why? Because they're under their parents' authority, they're part of their parents' household. And in fact, household remains even a legal term uh, today, right? Many of us file our taxes as head of household, right? Uh, so there's still this recognition that there is, a, there is a, a legal unit called a household even today. Okay, so that's, that's the who. What about the why? Uh, why would we baptize not just the individual, but their household as well? Uh, because I'm focusing on this idea of household, uh, there are two things about baptism that I can't really go into in any detail, uh, but I, I need to point out, and if you've been around here for any length of time, you've heard me say them at baptisms, uh, and that is, one, that baptism is a seal of God's promise. It's a seal of God's oath. Right? It's, it's God putting his stamp on his promise, uh, his sort of seal of guarantee, so to speak. And two, baptism is a seal, therefore, of our relationship to God that comes from that promise. And so baptism is more than this, but it's at least this. Uh, and in these things, it's, it's similar to, and you've probably heard this before, it's similar to a wedding ring. Right? The, the ring that your spouse gave you. Uh, you know, sometimes we think about the ring that's on our finger. If you're married, you think about the ring that's on your finger as a sign of your promise. That's actually not true. Uh, your spouse gave you that ring, right? The ring that's on your finger is a sign of your spouse's promise, right? Uh, the ring your spouse gave you was a seal of the vows that he or she made when, when your spouse said, with this ring, I thee wed, right? This ring is a seal of my promise to you. 
And so, therefore, the, the, the seal, the ring, becomes a seal of that new relationship, right? It's a seal of the promise and, therefore, a seal of the relationship that comes about because of that promise. Baptism is God's wedding ring to us, right? It's the seal of his pledge and, therefore, of his now being our God and us, his people. Okay, so the question is, uh, why would we baptize households given that? Why would we give the seal of God's promise and the sign of this relationship, not just to the one who believes, but also to his or her household? Well, there are two answers to that question. One is God's promise, both in the Old Testament and in the New, God's promises are to you and your children. God's promises to Abraham or to Abraham and his seed. Uh, God's promises throughout the Old Testament were to the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, right, the whole household. According to Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.39, God's promises continue to be to you and to your children. God's way of doing things has not changed in that respect. God's promises are objectively passed on to the children of his people. Those promises still need to be subjectively received, Right? So uh, I, I might promise to buy you dinner if we meet at Black Dog, but if you don't show up, you're not going to get any dinner. Uh, right? There's still there's a, this objective promise. There's a subjective reception of it. There are two different things. And so God's promises are given to the children of believers, but they still must be received by faith. Because baptism is a sign of God's promises, it's right to give the sign to those to whom the promises are, uh, are given, to those to whom the promises belong. Now, now, you might be thinking, okay, well, what does that mean that God's promises belong to the children of believers? And how do they belong to them any more than anybody else? Well, think about it. Again, the Old Testament helps us understand this. Uh, who were God's Old Testament promises to? Well, they were to Abraham and his seed. Uh, shorthand for that in the Old Testament is Israel. God's promises were to his people. Any natural-born Israelite could claim those promises as his own. Could you receive those promises if you were not an Israelite? Well, yes, actually. You could convert to Judaism, uh, you could receive circumcision, and you could become a partaker of the promises. Similarly, a natural-born Israelite could reject those promises and be cut off from Israel. And so you have two things that are true. On the one hand, the promises are uniquely to the children of Israel but that neither guaranteed them the reception of the things promised if they rejected the God of Israel, nor did it restrict the promises to them if someone adopted the God of Israel, right? The same is true in the New Testament. The promises are to you and to your children, but as with Israel, that doesn't exclude others from believing, nor does it guarantee the ultimate reception of those things promised. Okay, so why baptize a household? On the one hand, God's promises are to us and to our children, to our household. And baptism is the seal of those promises. Second, and this is, is just as true, right? When you come to God, when you believe in him and belong to him, God says mine over all of you. Right? We, we know this is true, right? If you become a Christian, God doesn't say, I want a little of your time. I want just a little of your money. I, I want just a little of your possessions, relationships, thoughts. God doesn't say, I want a little of your heart. Right? What does he say? God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. 
And put, put differently, right, when God claims you as his own, he claims everything that belongs to you, including your children. God doesn't say, I'll take you, but, you know, leave your children behind. And this is the way God dealt with people again, from, from the Old Testament times into the New. So when God saved Noah, he didn't make him leave his children to drown. Genesis 6, God is getting ready to judge the earth. Noah alone is righteous before him. God says to Noah, Genesis 6, 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. When the ark is finally built, we're told in Genesis 7, 1, the Lord says to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Same thing's true in the Exodus, right? When God uh, brought his people out of Egypt, he doesn't say, I'll bring you out, but you'll have to leave your children in slavery. The Exodus proper, you know, began with this, this final plague in the, the long series of plagues that, that culminated in the Passover. And the command for the Passover began like this in Exodus 12, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And then the blood of that lamb is put on the doorpost and uh, uh, that kept safe all who were in that house. Uh, following the Passover then, uh, we're told that over 600,000 men left Egypt. In addition, we are told specifically to women and children, Exodus 12, 37. And they were all baptized into Moses in the Red Sea, according to Paul. It's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. What's the point? The point is that household by household, family by family, God dealt with Israel. Well, why? Well, because when, when God takes you, he wants all of you. And he will care for all of you. He wants you to be wholly devoted to him, you and your household. And he promises to care for you, all of you, you and your household. God doesn't want us to live compartmentalized lives where I have this religious life over here that's completely separate from my family life over here. That's not the way the Christian life works. God wants all of you, including your relationships within your family. Think of that famous uh, Old Testament passage in the book of Joshua. It's probably the only famous passage in the book of Joshua, right? Uh, the end of Joshua's life, uh, he is calling Israel to faithfulness to God, and it ends with these words uh, in Joshua 24, 15, choose this day whom you will serve. And he goes on, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, I actually think these words bug us on two fronts. On the one hand, uh, they bug us because of, our, because of our individualism, right? How can Joshua speak for his children? How can I speak for my children? I mean, what right do we have to say that uh, what God our children will serve? Of course, in the ancient world, in ancient Israel or in Rome, right, that, that was not a question. Uh, in Rome, the head of the household chose which household gods the house would serve. In, ancient, in the ancient world, the head of the household chose which ancient deity the household would worship. This is why in Acts 16, 34, the household rejoices that he, the Philippian jailer, had believed in God. And while I don't think Scripture calls us to buy into all the cultural aspects of households in Rome or even Israel, Scripture does teach that our children are under our authority. And it's right to say... Right? As, as long as you're in my house, right, you're, you're going to go to church, you're going to participate in family devotions, we're going to live according to the moral law of God. 
Now, you certainly, you don't want to be a jerk about those things with your kids. That, that won't go over well. Uh, but it's right to expect it, to call your kids to follow Jesus. You do have that authority. And so you teach and you train and you expect your children to follow Jesus. There's another reason, though, that, that Joshua's words maybe bug us a little. Uh, okay, so fine, I can force my kids to go to church or sit through family devotions. What good does that do? I mean, I can't coerce my children into believing. Right? I, can't, I can't make them love the Lord their God. Joshua knew that. Think about it. Joshua knew that because remember, Joshua was Moses' understudy. And Joshua knew the things that Moses taught. He, Moses taught that outward circumcision was not enough. Deuteronomy 10, 16, Moses says to Israel uh, that they had to be circumcised in their hearts, not just in their flesh. Joshua knew, as Moses taught, that in the end, God had to be the one to circumcise their hearts in the heart of their offspring, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. That's God's job, to circumcise our hearts and to circumcise the hearts of our children. And so Moses taught, and therefore Joshua knew, God must work in the hearts of our children if they are to not just go through the motions, but be truly drawn to him. That's God's work, not ultimately ours. What then does Joshua's famous stake in the ground amount to then? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What does that mean? It means that Joshua is going to, going to do everything possible to lead his children to serve Yahweh faithfully. He knows his children are devoted to Yahweh ceremonially through circumcision, and so he will do everything possible to see that his children devote themselves to Yahweh practically through faith and obedience. And so why baptize households? Well, God's, God's promises consistently in Scripture from the Old Testament into the New are to you and your children. And God wants all of you. He wants all of you. When he brings you to himself, uh, he doesn't want you just to have a, a little religious part of you. He wants all of you. And baptism is both the seal of those promises and the mark of God's ownership on you and your children. Baptism is God's way of saying, my promises are real, I give you my word. Right? Another analogy, baptism is like God's legal signature, confirming his word of promise. When we sign a document, right, we're, we're not just saying this is true, uh, but we're, we're giving our word. We are attesting to that by the sign of our signature. Baptism is also the mark of God's ownership. Baptism says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Uh, do you remember uh, Toy Story? I know it's been a few years, but Toy Story. Uh, the main character in Toy Story is Woody, and uh, he, he knew that his relationship to his owner was secure. Why? Because the name Andy was written in permanent marker on his boot until Toy Story 2, but that's another story. Uh, but, but baptism is like that, because by baptism, God places his sign on us who belong to him. So who made up a household? A household was a community of people gathered under a single head. Why baptize households? Because God's promises are to us and to our children. And God wants all of you, everything that is yours. And so baptism is both the seal of those promises, which are to us and to our children, and the mark of God's ownership. We belong to him. Okay, next question, what? What does baptism of households mean now 
right? Uh, what does it mean when children in particular are baptized? Well, let me say this, and I think this is really important. If whatever your understanding of baptism, if, if um, whatever your understanding of baptism is, baptism needs to mean the same thing both for adults and for children. So, so baptism for adults and baptism for children has the same meaning, same implications, same call on our lives. And so whether you were baptized as a child in a covenant home or whether you grew up in a non-Christian home and were baptized as a single adult with no household uh, to speak of, your baptism means the same thing. And here's what it means. On, on the one hand, uh, having the sign, we seek the things that are signified. Right? Baptism is a seal of God's promises, and having the words of promise and having the, the seal of those promises, seek what is promised. So what are the promises given in baptism? Well, in, in, uh, in the book of Acts, the two main ones highlighted uh, can be seen in Acts 2.38, where Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Through baptism, God seals his promises to forgive our sins and to give us the gift of the Spirit. Now, again, if I, if I give you a, a signed document that says, meet me at three and I'll give you a million dollars, you don't go off cheerfully planning to spend the money and then forget to meet me at three. God's promises are free, but they, they must be received. And how are they received? Uh, God's promises are received through faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so we have this promise, we have God's seal, God's stamp of approval on his promise, and then we respond to that in faith. We believe, we seek the things promised through faith. So promises must be received through faith, and, and that's true every day, right? Faith is not, a, it's not something we do once. We don't say, well, yeah, I, I believed back in 1982 uh, in this little church on the mountain, and the pastor asked me to come forward, and I walked, no, no. Faith is something we do not once, right? but it's believing God's promises every day, trusting in the work of Jesus every day. God has confirmed his promises to us through an oath. He will not go back on his word. Do you trust him? Right? Do, you, do you trust him to forgive your sins? Do you trust him to give you his spirit? Or do you doubt do you ever struggle to believe that God will actually forgive you? Uh, you know, sometimes people think, well, I know God forgives people. I know he forgives people because of the blood of Jesus, but I'm not so sure that he's going to forgive me. Your baptism should actually be an encouragement to you that God will keep his promise to you. Our baptism can be a means of strengthening our faith as we look to Jesus, that these promises are for me, even me. God will not go back on his promises. So what does baptism mean for us? Having the seal of that promise. Seek the things that are promised. Seek them by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. So whether you were baptized as a child or as an adult, it, it doesn't matter, right? The meaning is the same. The import is the same. Trust God's oath to you in baptism and receive those promises through faith in Jesus. Second thing it means. What, is, what does baptism mean for us? Second thing, God has made you holy. Therefore, be holy. Baptism is a sign that we belong to God. That's what it means to be holy. 
right, to be set apart. Through baptism, we're brought into a community that is consecrated to Jesus. On Pentecost, Peter called the people, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And the result was those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Right? The point is that by baptism, they are visibly brought out of this crooked generation and are added to the church. To be baptized is to be set apart from the world and for Jesus. And this is why Jesus talks about it as the first step of discipleship in Matthew 28, right? Disciples are made first through baptism and second through being taught to obey, right? Baptism brings you into a life of learning to follow Jesus. Baptism, because it is a, a sign that God is our God and we are his people, baptism is a sign that we are holy, that we are his. And this is true even of our children, uh, Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, that children of even one believing parent are holy. That's what he says. Your children are holy. Baptism is the sign of that reality. Okay, if we are holy, what now? Well, if you are holy, if you've been set apart for God, be holy. <laughs> Again, this is true of everyone who has been baptized. Uh, baptism says you are holy to God now go be holy. If you're a child, of course, don't think that this call to holiness is not just for adults. Uh, in Ephesians 6, Paul calls children to discipleship. And he gives children this special covenant promise uh, that, that belongs to them as members of Christ's church. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, uh, Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's the call to discipleship. <laughs> Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may, may live long in the land. And that is a call to discipleship for covenant children. They follow Jesus by, by obeying their parents in the Lord. Where are those children? In the Lord, right? covenantally united to Jesus. And those covenant kids are given covenant promises. Quoting Exodus chapter 20, Paul says, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And, and here's the point. Baptism marks us out as belonging to God. What do we do now? Just like Israel belonged to God in the Old Testament, right? We are his chosen people. What do we do now? We live for him. Being marked out as God's is the beginning of discipleship, not the end point. Right? Baptism is not the, not, the, not the climax, but the entrance into a life of discipleship. And if you have been marked as God's through baptism, that is a call for you to spend your life for him. You are not your own. You belong to another. God is your God, and you are his people. Okay, last question. Briefly, very briefly, too briefly. How? How does this household pattern reflect the gospel? What is the logic of grace that is being worked out here in our baptism, especially in household baptisms? Well, let me say a few quick things. Uh, I know in our individualistic culture, we tend not to like the idea of belonging to a household, that, that sort of my identity is somehow wrapped up in the identity of these other people. Uh, but our entire gospel hope rests on the fact that we belong to another. That is true in at least two senses, probably more. For one, think about this. For one, the original gospel promises were given to who? They were given to Abraham. 
They were given to Abraham and his children. Okay, how is it that we, Gentiles all, probably in this room, right? Uh, how is it that we can benefit from those promises given to Abraham? Only because, Paul says throughout the book of Galatians, again and again in various ways, only because we become children of Abraham by faith. Right? We, we become a part of Abraham's family when we believe. So we receive the gospel benefits because we are a part of Abraham's household. And so if you refuse to be a part of Abraham's household, you will ultimately reject the promises of the gospel. Because the promises are to him and his children, which you are through faith in Jesus. Now, of course, ultimately, uh, we don't stand before God in Abraham. <laughs> we stand before God in Jesus. Right? Jesus is the head of the household of God. And it's because Jesus represents us to the Father that all the benefits of grace are ours. It's because he obeyed the Father perfectly that we can be God's beloved children. See, we, we get in to the family of God on the merits of another. That is the way the gospel works. Baptism of children is just a little picture of that, right? We, we say sometimes of children, they, they can't offer anything. Yes, that's the point. Neither can you. We have nothing to bring to God. You know, when, when the New Testament says, when Jesus says in the New Testament that we must come to God like little children, I think we often miss the point. The point is not, uh, you know, children are so sweet or children you know, are so innocent or children are so accepting. The point is, in that culture, children have no status whatsoever. They're worthless. You can do anything to a child in that culture. It doesn't matter because they're just kids. The point is we come to God like that. We have nothing to bring to him. We come seeking grace, undeserved, unearned grace. Why would we ever want to argue that God takes each of us on our own merits? We have none. God accepts us based on the merits of another, even Jesus, the head of the household of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the grace that is ours in him. We thank you that we are your children. We are a part of your household through him and through faith in him. Help us, Father, each of us, whether we grew up in the church or whether this is our first time gathered with God's people, help each of us to trust in the blood of Jesus, to cleanse us from our sin. Help us to believe and to be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.